virtual breakfast. My name is Monica Jean and I am a field crops educator based out of the Saginaw Bay region. Today the host will be Eric Anderson, a field crops educator based out of southwest Michigan, and he will be hosting our weed extension specialist Christy Sprague discussing weed escapes. You'll also be getting the weekly update on weather from Dr. Jeff Andreessen. Enjoy! All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric Anderson. I'm a field crops educator with Michigan State. I'm down in the southwest corner of the state, and I'll be your host this morning. So this morning, we get to hear from Dr. Christy Sprague. Uh, if you've been joining us for the entire season, you know that she kind of kicked us off uh, in the spring with some spring weed challenges. Now she's going to uh, wrap up or come close to wrapping up our season talking about some considerations for, for fall scouting and weed management. So Christy, thanks for joining us and I'll have you take over. Thanks, Eric. And good morning, everyone. Um, as Eric said, uh, we started out the beginning of the season talking about um, ways that we could manage weeds and uh, thought we would be all set, but it has been a challenge this year. So as we start thinking about um, moving forward to uh, this fall, as well as thinking about what we might do in 2022, I thought it might be important to kind of do a quick review of what we've uh, seen this year as far as weed control. Um, obviously, it has been challenging. We have seen that um, some of the dry conditions that we experienced early really uh, caused some reductions in weed control. Uh, basically because our pre-emergence herbicides weren't working like they needed to because of the lack of precipitation or rain. Um, and additionally, when we got around to late June, we had some of those excessive uh, rainfalls um, into late June, early July, and that has really kind of picked up a lot of the weed escapes that we've seen later in the season. So um, as you start thinking about uh, the weather that you experienced in your area, um, some of the challenges that we've had is that late rainfall really um, caused the germination and emergence of um, some of our later season weeds and um, some of the early dry weather that we had, um, some of those herbicides weren't working quite as well. So as we're driving around right now, a lot of, of the weeds that we're seeing that have escaped control are things like velvet leaf, uh, some common lambs quarters, both common and giant ragweed. Uh, we do see quite a bit of fields out there of uh, horseweed, um, mare's tail. And then uh, we are seeing a few fields with palmer amaranth, but really seeing kind of an explosion of water hemp. So if you see the picture here on the slide, um, this is a field that um, is kind of a, a, a field where water hemp hasn't been noticed before. So it was corn last year. There may have been one or two plants, and you can see uh, there's just kind of a small area that um, where we where water hemp has come up this year. So these are some of the things that we need to think about as we uh, kind of go into harvest. So in looking at that, um, these are some pictures that uh, were taken yesterday of just some different uh, soybean fields. You can see at the top we have uh, some common ragweed escapes. Um, also some lambs quarter escapes down in the, the left hand corner. And then um, you can see a water hump field there. So one of the things that's, um, that we wanna do is kind of think about, well, what can we do right now? 
Well, we know it's a little, or it's really too late to do any in-season herbicide applications. Right now is a good time to really start scouting for those weed escapes and trying to prepare for next year and see um, what are some of the things that we might want to do. One of the things I would recommend is going out and looking at a lot of your fields and kind of evaluating or evaluate the effectiveness of uh, your herbicide program that you had this year. Um, you know, are you seeing some of those weed escapes? What are those weed escapes? Um, and really trying to think if there are new weeds that are showing up in some of those fields. So for example, on this slide, we have a, a soybean field where cocklebur has um, uh, pretty much infested it. So that that would be kind of a newer weed that um, we don't see a whole lot of. So thinking about what are, might be some of the management strategies that we might do for 2022. So again, now's a perfect time to start scouting for those weed escapes. Also, when you're in your combine harvesting, um, that's another place to note to where you might see some of those um, escapes. The other thing is we do know that a lot of these escapes may be due to um, resistance issues. So I thought I'd spend a little bit of time talking about um, some of the resistance, uh, herbicide resistance problems that we've seen in Michigan, as well as what you can do about that um, moving forward. So here's um, a pretty inclusive list of all the different herbicide resistant weeds that we have in Michigan. Uh, currently we have 21 different weed species that have developed resistance to um, at least five different herbicide sites of action. While you look at this list, you see we have quite a different number of weed species that have uh, developed resistance to the triazine herbicides, things like atrazine. Um, also the ALS herbicides, the group two herbicides are also ones where we have quite a uh, big extensive list. Um, as you look at this, the ones that we usually are pretty more concerned about are the ones that are glyphosate resistant. So things like horseweed, palmer amaranth, common ragweed, and giant ragweed. But in addition to that, over the last couple of years, we've actually identified a few more weeds that have another resistance, which is to the PPO, PPO inhibitors. So if you think about what those herbicides are, those are things like Cobra, Ultra Blazer, Flexstar, Reflex, things that we may use in soybeans or potentially dry beans. Um, and then, uh, so with those challenges, and we start seeing um, a lot of these similar weed species, one of the other things we see is that many of these weeds are not just resistant to one of these herbicide sites of action, but to multiple. So um, that makes it really challenging when we start thinking about um, how we're gonna manage some of these weeds during the 2022 season. So um, as I mentioned, um, you know, some of those weed escapes may be due to herbicide resistance. So when should you test to see if a weed is resistant to some of those herbicides? So one of the things that I always think about is, should that herbicide program have worked on managing that weed? So if I know that I have a, a pretty extensive program where I'm using multiple herbicide sites of action um, and it should have killed that weed, or if I know that you know, Roundup has worked in the past, it should have killed it. You know, those are some of the things where I wanna think about um, maybe taking some samples and getting those tested. Uh, some of the things we want to think about and not um, necessarily looking at getting those weeds tested is, as I said, we had some dry conditions early. Um, some of those pre-herbicides uh, didn't work as well. So if we were relying totally on those pre's to control those weeds, um, you know, it may have that those weed escapes may have been due 
to that. The other thing is if we have some weeds that came up late. So for example, Eastern Black Nightshade seems to come up a lot after our last post-emergence herbicide. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that this year because of the late rain that we had and um, some of the issues with that. Um, when we really wanna test for resistance is if we know if we have an unknown or uncommon resistant weed profile in the area. Um, some of the common ones that we see is glyphosate and ALS resistant uh, horseweed mare's tail, uh, water hemp or palmer amaranth. So in that case, if you have water hemp that shows up, you probably might as well just bank on it being resistant to glyphosate and probably an ALS inhibitor. But there are also some other resistance profiles that can happen. So when we wanna get those tested is when we have some of those less uncommon issues. Um, so for example, we do have a few fields of uh, glyphosate resistant common and giant ragweed, but it's not widespread throughout the state. So it might be important to go ahead and get those uh, tested if you have those weed escapes. Also, um, if we were trying to rely on a PPO inhibitor or atrazine and we're starting to see, um, or and tank mixes with glyphosate and we're seeing those weed escapes, you may wanna get those tested. And then obviously other species that aren't controlled that you think should have been controlled. And um, our uh, plant diagnostic clinic on campus, uh, we have a weed diagnostician, Dr. Erin Hill, and she does a lot of testing for herbicide resistance. So I thought I would give you a little bit of an update on um, how you can send those samples in. So for example, um, what Erin does is, uh, what you would do is collect uh, five or more weeds with mature seed. And she has put together a great fact sheet called uh, Tips for Collecting Mature Weeds that has this uh, table, shows you um, what the weed seeds look like and what color they should be when they're mature. So for example, with water hemp, usually you're looking for the uh, dark brown or black seed from a female plant. And then let's say you're collecting some from mare's tail, you would be looking for uh, the seed to be brown and not white. So those are some of the mature seeds that she would need for testing. The other thing she would ask that you do is you send those in in a, a paper bag. Um, you wanna use a paper bag to make sure that there is no molding. Also wanna include a uh, submission form. Those submission forms can be found on the pestidmsu.edu website, as well as in the uh, weed control guide. Um, so those submission forms are there. And then if you could send those, um, usually before November, she likes to have everything um, ready to go by November 15th. So as you're collecting your weed seeds, go ahead and get those sent in and she will uh, be able to test those. Um, those can either be mailed to the diagnostic services or brought in uh, in person to the diagnostic services lab at Michigan State University. And you can see um, that address here, but you can also get that from the uh, submission form. And really uh, the process of testing for resistance is really making sure that you clean the seed or she will clean the seed and then um, basically plant that, apply herbicide applications at both the 1X and 4X rate and let you know if there's uh, resistance. In general, she usually tests about six or seven different herbicide sites of action. So you know which um, herbicides will work in controlling that weed species. One of the great things is the Michigan Soybean Promotion Committee has supported the testing of several of these weed species if you find them in your soybean field. So if you have a soybean field where you have some of these escapes, things like palmer amaranth, water hemp, common lambs quarters, horseweed, and both giant ragweed species. 
You can also get other species tested, but um, a lot of times you will have to pick up the cost of that. And I believe it's around $90 per sample. Um, and again, for more information, you can go to the pest ID site or uh, msuweeds.com or contact Erin uh, directly. So what else can be done? So we know we've got a lot of weed escapes that have happened this year. One thing to think about is if you're driving by a field and you happen to see kind of a small patch of weeds, um, it doesn't take too much long to try to remove those weeds by hand, uh, really to get those out of there, particularly the ones that we think might be resistant. So for example, this is uh, a few Palmer amaranth plants in a, a soybean field. If we remove those by hand before combining, basically we're not able, we're not spreading that seed around and knowing that we can have up to 400,000 seeds on each plant, um, that'll help uh, prevent a big mess. Another issue is if you have a field that has quite a bit of resistant weeds, um, one thing you might wanna consider is harvesting around that weedy area or also harvesting that weedy field last to make sure that you're not spread spreading those herbicide resistant weeds from field to field. Additionally, there are some harvest aids that can be used in soybeans. I will just put those up. They're not really commonly used, um, but in some cases, if you have certain weed species that are green, you might be able to help desiccate those weeds. Uh, here's a list of those, as well as the uh, um, use rates and pre-harvest intervals. We have a whole section on this in the weed control guide. So if you're interested in looking at those a little bit more closely, you can go to pages 110 or 111 and 111. And with pre-harvest treatments, I also thought I might just bring up uh, the use in dry beans because we do use those a lot. And that is actually happening right now as we're harvesting dry beans. And again, these are really to help um, manage some of those weeds that may interfere with harvest, but it also helps with um, the unevenness of the maturity of dry beans. So it basically dries those dry beans down. Um, we pretty much have four different herbicides we can use in dry beans, Gramoxone, Valor, Aim, and Sharpen. Um, with Sharpen, we want to use a methylated seed oil. Um, Sharpen has probably been one of our, Sharpen and Gramoxone have been our kind of more consistent um, products. Uh, we've also done some tank mixtures that have worked out well. Um, we can use up to two ounces of Sharpen, but in general, we see one ounce being as effective as two ounces. And again, that would have to have a methylated seed oil with it. And um, we really see that that application by itself works well in controlling things like ragweed and pigweed species. However, if we're gonna desiccate lamb's quarters, that tank mixture with vermoxone is needed. Um, and uh, the one thing that's a little bit of a challenge is some of the restrictions that we now have on vermoxone as far as the added certification to um, make those applications. One other thing I do want to mention is we did see a little bit of um, issues with the two ounce rate with Sharpen um, in the past in this last year because it was dry. Um, and just to um, remind you that if you're going to go to something like sugar beets or, um, or dry beans, which is usually not recommended, we want to make sure that we're using that one ounce rate. Uh, that one ounce rate has a rotation restriction that is less. It's at four months. And we need to make sure that we're not including the uh, rotation interval where the ground is frozen. So you can see here in the front, we had, there was two ounces of Sharpen and caused some uh, setback in the sugar beets. That has also been seen with um, 
uh, in drivings following uh, a desiccation treatment in drivings the following year. One other quick thing I just wanted to mention is there are fall herbicide applications that we can uh, use to help manage some of the winter annual weeds. Uh, in particular, we'll talk about so horse weed or mare's tail since this is the biggest issue. Once a field like this is harvested, a lot of times you will see new mare's tail plants um, uh, after harvest, and sometimes it's a good idea to get those controlled. In controlling those, um, really what we want to do is help reduce that variability from spring herbicide treatments. In some cases, we will need another spring burn down, but definitely would need a residual to get some of those late season emergents. You can see here's a fall burn down compared to uh, no fall burn down. Here are some of the options that you can use to manage uh, mare's tail, things like 2,4-D ester, uh, Sharpen, dicamba. In general, a lot of times we want to make sure that we tank mix those with glyphosate and AMS, and that really helps improve control of some of the other winter annual weeds, um, as well as controlling some of the perennials such as dandelion, and that's a great time to do that. And just one last thing I want to mention is um, as we're planting wheat, it's going to be important to control some of those uh, winter annuals or perennials that may be out there at the time of planting. So if you're one of those ones that uh, go through, harvest your soybeans or dry beans, and then plant right away into it, um, it's a really good idea to think about um, trying to manage those weeds before that crop gets up, before the wheat crop gets up. This last year, we had a study where we're com comparing a lot of different um, um, conventional tillage, no-till with a fall burn down. In this case, we used uh, one ounce of Sharpen and Roundup, and then no-till without a fall burn down. And you can see um, the yield at the end of the season where we were seeing um, quite a bit of a, a benefit to either the conventional till or the no-till with the fall burn down. So with that, just want to remind you, we do have several resources available. Um, in the weed control guide, as well as our website, msuweeds.com. And with that, I will turn it over to Jeff. Thanks. Um, or back to Eric, maybe, <laughs> real quickly here. Yeah. Uh, we'll, please go ahead and enter any okay. questions that you might have for Christy into the chat, but I think we'll hold questions until after Jeff's presentation. Well, thank you, Eric, and good morning. Uh, there are a few spots in the state here with some fog this morning, but uh, in general, it's it's a gorgeous. It certainly is here in East Lansing, uh, and I, I think it is in most areas. Uh, temperatures this morning under Canadian high pressure uh, from the mid-40s in the far north to uh, some mid-50s, but just a, another beautiful day. And I guess the, the short of it is, at least for the forecast, we've got a couple more where that came from, uh, if, if you're wondering. Uh, I do want to start, though, here by looking, uh, well, at the last week, some review, and we, we did have another severe weather outbreak here uh, during the day on Tuesday, the afternoon and evening hours. The uh, image you see here depicts some of the events during that day. Most of them were, the most of the problems were associated with high winds, uh, trees down, there were about 100,000 people who lost power. But uh, with this one, there were also were some large hail. Uh, the meteorologists refer to them as hailers. There definitely were a couple uh, here. In, in, well, you can see the damage here. The green, green triangles are actually uh, reports of large hail, one inch or larger. 
we did have several reports of, uh, of two inch hail in Michigan and even a couple of two and a half inch uh, in uh, Lake uh, Osceola, uh, Wexford counties were in, in particular. And if you look at the uh, look at the actual pattern here of the of the these individual events, you can see the individual well the cells that were individually uh, responsible for these. One going across central Lower Michigan here from west to east. Here's another one just to the south of that. And then there was another one that went across southwestern Lower Michigan. Again, that's all related to the same original complex of, of thunderstorms. Most of these were due to, uh, well, a couple of things. We had a, a, a strong upper trough, which is what brought us the cool air here, uh, here over the last couple of days, uh, moving through aloft. And then we had uh, very warm and humid conditions on the surface, a surface cold front, all those things uh, that combined to, it can lead and combine to cause severe weather. All those ingredients were there on Tuesday, unfortunately. But uh, again, it, it probably could have been worse than it was. Uh, but uh, a, a little bit unusual to see that in the fall, not, not completely crazy, but something we more often see earlier in the year. For the past week here, given especially the cooler temperatures as of late, you, know, you can see on the left-hand side here, our mean temperature departures for the, the week were, were generally cooler than normal. Uh, from about uh, one, uh, maybe two degrees to as much as four degrees as you go up into western upper Michigan. So uh, the beginning of Jan beginning of September here anyway has uh, trended out to be a little cooler than normal. Fo that follows, of course, a very warm August. Uh, on the right-hand side here, our total precipitation, uh, actually fairly, fairly widespread. There were a couple of exceptions to this, but most areas picked up at least a half an inch, uh, many cases more than three quarters of an inch. You can see an area here uh, along the I-96 corridor that got much less uh, locally here in, in the East Lansing area, for example, just about a quarter of an inch fell. But most areas did, uh, did better than that here for the week. Our growing degree day units, uh, the seasonal totals here on the left-hand side, uh, we, even though it was a little cooler than normal, uh, we, did, we did keep our surpluses. And then on the right-hand side, you can see most areas of the state still have a very, very uh, significant surplus. Some cases as much as 300 base 50 units, which is, which is pretty significant or sizable for this time of the year. Again, most of that, a lot of that accumulation, the buildup of that surplus, a lot of that took place in August due to uh, very, very mild nighttime temperatures. And uh, things moved along phenologically rapidly. And if uh, I have a research project here, on campus, looking at uh, at some moisture and dry down issues with corn, and it's uh, it's been amazing over the last couple of weeks to see how quickly things have changed. If you haven't looked, uh, have a, have a, take a peek out there and look. Things things are moving rapidly, and again, a lot of it has to do with the surplus in uh, in degree days. We also have a uh, one of the treatments in our plot is an 89 day hybrid that was planted in the middle of uh, of May here. And it just reached black layer here uh, officially yesterday, or at least some of the plots did. So things are things are moving along quickly. I want to just mention, I talked about that warm August. And if we look at long-term trends, it's interesting, Some a little bit of perspective. This is looking at the whole state of Michigan, and this is looking at changes in mean maximum temperature here during the summer. So this is June, July, and August on the left-hand side here. And then trends in minimum temperature on the right-hand side, and, and just to illustrate a little bit of what we saw here in August, if you look at the one on the left-hand side with maximum temperatures, it, there, there's not a whole lot, maybe a little bit of a slight upward trend that's taken place here uh, over the last few decades, but, but nothing really 
uh, really significant or are really, really noteworthy or strong uh, for that particular variable. But look at minimum temperature here. Uh, again, looking at this, the numbers are a little bit small, but what you can see here is a steady increase in our nighttime or our overnight minimum temperatures here uh, that began about 50 years ago and continues up to the present. So the well, our night or the minimum temperatures are getting warmer with time, and that was uh, that was very evident in, in August. Uh, and the range between the daytime and nighttime is also decreasing uh, with time. That's been observed in other places, but that's certainly here true here in Michigan. So a lot of this, uh, there is overall warming, but a lot of it is occurring at night. At least it has uh, over the last few decades. Well, uh, moisture here, but back to the current time here, time frame. And where, do, where does this last week leave us? Well, about the same as where we were last week. And that is where we've got some drier spots, although it's not a, not a major issue uh, in the uh, Western Upper Peninsula and across portions of Southern Lower Michigan here recently, but still have surpluses in plant available moisture, plant extractable moisture in the Northern Lower. Uh, and again, it's, the map has looked a lot like this uh, for the last several weeks now. The, uh, on the left-hand side here, at least the uh, evaporative demand and looking at vegetation condition, condition, the dryness has gotten a little bit worse or intensified a bit in the western half of Upper Michigan. But besides that, most areas are, are really in pretty good shape at this time of the year. Well, looking ahead at our forecast and our outlook here, uh, really a pretty straightforward forecast. Uh, on the weather map this morning, uh, these big blue H's, that's that Canadian origin air mass that I talked about and arrived uh, on Tuesday with, the, well, at least the leading edge of it with the severe weather, uh, that's gonna be around with us for at least another couple days. And as long as it's here, uh, we, can, we can count on more of the same. Uh, another, uh, well, mostly sunny and dry day today, uh, fair, we'll call it fair because it is an exception to this. Um, and also very breezy uh, with, uh, again, that has to do with some of the upper air, the big trough over the, the top of us. And with that trough there, there's some cold air aloft. And so as the day goes on and we heat up and remembering now that the lakes are still pretty warm for this time of the year, we will get, just like we saw yesterday, we will see some showers form, uh, but we're gonna call it isolated. I don't even think it'll make it to scattered 30% coverage. Uh, it hit and miss there. And it will be primarily across Northern parts of the state. I think if we do see any showers at all, uh, you'll see some, uh, some clouds with a little bit more vertical extent this afternoon and evening, uh, but most places will remain dry. So we can't certainly can't cancel that out. That's and that's typically what we see here. Remember, it's it's September, it's Michigan. We're downwind of the lakes in a lot of cases, and that's that's the kind of thing we see more and more often during the fall. So this is a a little bit of a hint of that with uh, the cold air aloft. But uh, that said, most places will see a, a nice fair uh, and dry day uh, here today one more time. Uh, tomorrow, Friday, uh, we can take the chance of showers out. The high pressure is right over the top of us. And so for basically statewide, we'll call it a sunny and dry day. Once again, it'll be a couple degrees warmer tomorrow. We'll, uh, we'll be looking at highs today only in the upper 60s north to the uh, low 70s south. So a few degrees below normal from where we should be at this time of the year. And another cool night tonight. Uh, temperatures down in the 40s. Uh, to maybe low 50s in the south. So a few degrees remaining uh, below normal, a little bit warmer tomorrow. Uh, and then uh, you can see here on the left-hand side here, the next weather system approaches uh, to our north. This is Saturday morning. You can see that as a frontal boundary here, but it, uh, it's gonna be moisture starved, not much to work with. 
in terms of water. Uh, we will see some, and we'll call it again, isolated uh, showers possible in northern parts of the state, but most of the state on Saturday should be dry. And the other thing with the high pressure moving off to our east and with return flow out of the southwest, very, very, uh, well, well, we'll call it increasing southwesterly winds. It's going to bring some warmer air in here. And we will see mid-80s again, at least in southern parts of the state, a little bit cooler than that, uh, low 80s in the north, but uh, it will be significantly warmer both on Saturday and again on Sunday. And then finally, uh, going beyond this, uh, the frontal boundary makes its way through uh, overnight, uh, late Sunday uh, into Monday. That would be, again, a chance of showers in southern parts of the state, but uh, probably no more than a 20 or 30% chance at best. So you might be asking, well, when will there be a chance of, uh, of anything significant rainfall-wise? I think the answer probably would be uh, overnight Monday into Tuesday, and then continuing on on a daily basis. The middle of next week looks like the next best chance for anything widespread or significant for most of the state. And I think that that's, we, we probably, most areas will be uh, drier than normal for the upcoming week, but most of the precipitation that falls will be, uh, again, several days out, four, five, six, uh, seven days out. Here's the total for that time frame through next Thursday morning. Uh, most spots less than, uh, well, quarter to half inch type range. And again, the vast majority of what you see here on the map will be uh, next week from uh, overnight Monday uh, into uh, Wednesday and Thursday. So dry short term with increasing chances for rain as we move then into uh, into next week. Uh, potential evapotranspiration rates. Uh, this actually, oh, I've got the wrong date range on here. This is actually for the upcoming week, not for the second to the eighth. But given the cooler than normal temperatures here early, uh, probably at or a little bit below uh, long-term climatological normals. The total for the week here, you can see ranges from about three quarters of an inch uh, in the northern part of the state to about 1.1 inches in the far south. So again, just a tad below what we would typically see for this time of the year. Uh, it will matter most here again over the next several days, but then uh, water or rainfall is expected uh, once again next week. Looking beyond this in the medium range forecast guidance, there are some changes suggested by the medium range uh, forecast, uh, certainly with regard to temperature. But if you look here at the jet forecast jet stream pattern, this is out to the 16th through the 22nd, you can see a little bit of a change because right now we've got a big trough over the Great Lakes region that will be moving out here this weekend and it'll be replaced by a more uh, flat west to east type of, of flow pattern next week. But Beyond that, and that's what I want to really focus on here, beyond that, note, you can see the beginning maybe of a troughing feature over Western North America, and then a little bit of a ridging uh, feature over the central and eastern part of the U.S. That's sort of where we're headed for the latter part of the month, which would suggest a return once again of warmer than normal mean temperatures. And so both 6 to 10 day and 8 to 14 day outlooks are fairly consistent here in calling for warmer than normal. So while September has begun a little bit cooler than normal, uh, the odds are that we will see a flip-flop during the middle of the month and then move to warmer than normal later on. Uh, Precipitation is a little bit more of a difficult variable here, uh, at least in terms of the forecast. Some of the outlooks like the one you see here for the 8 to 14 day outflow suggest drier than normal conditions. We also see some signals for wetter than normal conditions. So I would say basically uh, not much confidence in either direction. Um, certainly there is, I think, with temperature, but not so much for precipitation. The six to 10 day outlook actually does suggest 
a little bit above normal precipitation for at least for the latter part of next week. But then beyond that, for the, the not this weekend, but the one following it, you can see drier than normal uh, weather here indicated. So uh, I would not put much much faith in precipitation outlook at this point, at least for the next couple of weeks. The only thing, again, uh, I, I would I would bank on would be the above normal mean temperatures. So summarizing here, wrapping things up, uh, fair, dry, uh, actually pretty pleasant, beautiful weather here for the short term. There will be a couple of isolated showers, uh, mainly again, northern areas of the state here this afternoon. Tomorrow looks dry statewide. And then uh, some scattered rainfall activity once again possible this weekend, but uh, uh, that's the exception rather than the rule. Uh, most of the, the greatest chance for precipitation will hold off until next week. It also is going to get progressively warmer as we move into the weekend uh, and then into uh, early next week as well with, with high temperatures back into the 80s once again or at above normal levels. And as we've just seen here, uh, most of the medium range forecast guidance does suggest that uh, the latter half of September will turn warmer than normal again. That's, that's It's probably positive news here. At least we think about uh, uh, dry down conditions in the field and maturation of our crops, our annual crops and so forth. Uh, but that that's certainly looks like the direction we're headed right, right now. And with that, I'm going to wrap up and move on to uh, introduce our speaker next week, uh, our virtual breakfast next Thursday, and that's Dr. Marisol uh, Quintanilla, uh, who's going to be talking with us. And if I can stay on the same slide here, uh, Marisol is going to be talking with us about soybean nematodes. So don't miss that. Again, that's a week from this morning. And I'll, with that, I'm going to wrap up and turn it back over to, uh, to Eric. Great. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Uh so uh, for those of you who are not monitoring the chat, uh, I'll just highlight a couple of things. Uh, Erin Hill, uh, who Christy had alluded to earlier, she put a couple of things in, uh, some links to some fact sheets and some other resources. So um, if you have, uh, particularly for uh, resistance issues, uh, go ahead and check out the, the links in the chat. Uh, there was a back and forth about uh, rough stock bluegrass. Um, question was, is there an effective herbicide program? And Christy responded to that. Um, Osprey applications post in the fall have provided good control of rough stock bluegrass and early spring applications of Osprey or Axial Bold have been slightly better. And uh, Aaron and Christy also put a link to the MSU uh, Weeds website into the chat. So feel free to follow that link as well. Uh, here's one question for you, Christy. Is there an effective fall herbicide program for weed control, either broadleaf or grass, in winter wheat that would allow June clover frost seeding in the spring? Sure. Um, so most of our fall herbicide applications, uh, like a Husky, uh, Talonor, Axial Bold, Osprey, PowerFlex, all those different herbicides can be applied in the fall post-emergence. So usually you wanna wait until the wheat has one to uh, two leaves, some of them are three leaf, it depends on the product. And all of those we've been able to frost seed clover. We may see um, some reduction in clover establishment, but they, it is able to take off. And we've got those recommendations in each one of those products and the weed guide. So if you look up the uh, information, kind of the remarks and limitation section, It'll say whether it can be um, applied in the fall and then uh, frost seed clover. 
So those that's some of the information that we do have. Um, in the spring uh, for uh, spring applications, the only thing you can use is MCPA or Axial Bold. Okay, thanks, Chrissy. Um, so I forgot to mention that uh, if you do have any questions for Jeff, uh, he is actually going to be teaching here pretty quick. And so he might need to leave a couple minutes early. So if you've got any questions for Jeff, go ahead and put those in the chat. And Jeff, we do have one. Uh, why are minimum nighttime temperatures getting higher, do you think? Yeah, excellent question. And, and thanks for the follow-up. Uh, it's it's probably a couple things. The two, the two biggest factors physically, uh, an increase possibly in cloudiness. Remember that the clouds overnight keep our, our air temperatures a little bit warmer than they would be otherwise. The second one's related, but it's also uh, another physical factor, and that's the humidity is increasing. The amount of water vapor in the atmosphere is increasing, and so we, we don't get quite as much cooling at night because of that. That's, that's at least the, the standard uh, thought here now as to, to why we're seeing that. And it's Michigan and the Great Lakes region, not the only place that's happening. That's, that's fairly common uh, around, uh, especially around the mid-latitudes of the world. Good question, though. And Jeff, as a follow-up, um, Phil asks, maybe could the smoke um, that you had alluded to earlier in the season uh, from out west there, uh, could that have any impact on the nighttime temps? It could. The, the, and it, it's, it's, it's right on the, the, the rationale. It's probably a bigger fact, factor during the daytime when we're getting more block, blockage and reflection of incoming solar radiation. So it, it could affect the nighttime, but it's probably more a factor during the day. And uh, what we and we saw some of that this year, especially to our west in places like Wisconsin and Minnesota, uh, over the, where we actually had a cool, little bit cooler daytime maximum temperatures because of all the haze and smoke. There just wasn't as much solar radiation uh, getting down to the ground surface as the case typically. So yeah, that's a, that is another another factor, but probably more of an issue during the day. Okay. So I know the, the medium term, the longer lead outlooks are usually kind of stinky for uh, precipitation. Uh, but Clay asks if, if you have any sense as to what our moisture might look like uh, for wheat planting, maybe mid to late September. I think it's going to depend a lot on, on location and where you are. Uh, here locally, it's been amazing. And we think about how much rain we've had uh, in typical southern lower Michigan, many spots, uh, much above normal rainfall going back. Christy talked about this way the bad, all the way back to late June uh, and then in, through uh, July and, and, uh, and, and August, or at least the early part of August. It has dried out again, at least the topsoil. And I think that's the key is what, you know, what's up there in the top of the profile. And right now, uh, there, it's, it's gotten, uh, in, in many spots, especially with coarse textured soils, it's gotten a little dry again. And given the outlook, it probably is not going to get much different, not much of a change uh, over the next week or two. We'll see what, what happens next week. But uh, northern parts of the state look great. Uh, there, the, the moisture has been more consistent and, and, and actually heavier, relatively heavier. So some of it depends on location, but I, I, right now I don't see any kind of a long-term widespread wet pattern, uh, certainly in the, in the offing, uh, even though it, it did mention above normal precip in the six to 10 day outlook. Uh, it's, there aren't a lot of other signs of that. So 
If anything, we may have some areas again on, on I think on the coarser soils where the surface dryness is, is something you're going to have to watch. That would be my, I guess my, and it isn't a huge concern, but something to watch here over the next few weeks. Okay. Uh, back to the question of uh, nighttime temperatures. Here's an interesting one. Uh, what about added asphalt keeping temperatures warmer at night, maybe with increased urbanization? Right. And, and that, that certainly is a, a factor in areas, large metropolitan areas. It's a known, uh, a known issue with our temperature series, especially in places where we initially, what, what was uh, rural in, in character here physically uh, several decades ago, now is either suburban or in some cases even more developed than that. And, and those uh, features like asphalt and concrete certainly absorb heat. And then, of course, re-radiate that at night and, and, and create things or cause things to be warmer. That has to be taken into account and you can actually see warming occur. It's, it's real warming, but it's, it's more due to the landscape change than the climate change. But we also see though, what, what some of what we see or we've been talking about, we also see that at rural stations too, that do not have that. So if you're in an urban area, it's even more. That's, I think that's the bottom line. There's even more of a, of a nighttime uh, and actually a daytime increase in in temperature due to the change of the, of the landscape and, and more, more non-paved uh, concrete, et cetera, surfaces than those covered by, by plant material. So that's a, it's a definitely an issue. It's a good question. Okay. Um, so Christy, I've got a question for you. Um, we've seen a lot of volunteer corn uh, and in some cases pretty extensive in fields this year. And I know a lot of folks might think that, well, it's, it's not going to be a, a continuing and ongoing weed issue. And so um, they may not feel the need to, to control that. Do we have any resources, any studies that would try to quantify a certain number of, of corn volunteer per given area that would have a certain yield impact, anything like that? Uh, yeah, Eric, um, we haven't done any related to soybeans in Michigan, but I do know there have been some in other states that can show um, yield loss. And I know we've done some in uh, sugar beets and in Michigan, and we've, you know, we have been able to quantify that. And there is yield loss from that volunteer corn. So um, it's pretty, pretty simple to manage. Um, there are a few, you know, just throwing in some select or other plethidim type products with the post-emergence applications, pretty effective at controlling volunteer corn. So it's just one of those things uh, at the time of spring post-emergence herbicides we need to think about. Okay. Uh, I don't have any other questions in the chat, so I'm going to uh, ask one more time if anyone has questions to put those in right now. Uh, and I will open it up to other specialists who are on uh, anyone else have any insights or anything they'd like us to know about uh, heading into this this weekend? Eric, I'm not sure if Chris Defonso was still on, but I would appreciate an update on the armyworms and whether or not some of the planted wheat that's going to be in the ground here in the next couple of weeks uh, should be at risk for these armyworms. I'm actually going to jump in real quick, if that's okay, because Tilly's got to get going to daycare here, but <laughs> Chris Stefano and I, uh, well, Chris worked on this with Ohio State University, and I just made it possible by uh, posting it online, but we have insect guides now available. They're uh, 
If you go to the Field Crops team page, and uh, you'll see right on the top, there's a new tab that says Insect Guides. It's the second one. You click on that, and they're listed by commodity. There is a link at the top, the very first one, that kind of gives you a little tutorial on how the guides are laid out. Um, but besides that, I mean, Chris, you can give some details if you want, but they're all up there for you guys to use. Yeah, so this is an update of the e, the old E1582 guide that's like 10 years old. And uh, I, I always hated that guide because it was just a list of pesticides. Uh, so Tilly and Monica have helped uh, to post those chapters and uh, we've, we've arranged it so that it can be updated continuously. So um, if you're an industry folks and you, you perhaps see that a product isn't listed, uh, like we were able to remove uh, Lorsban very quickly last week before we even posted it. And then you just print the sections that you need. So print how to use this guide section and then print, you know, corn and beans, or maybe you have sugar beets. I realize it's, you know, at the end of the season rather than the beginning, but this took me about four years to figure out how to do this sort of using the weed guide a little bit, starting with that. And then putting a lot of information on biology, non-insecticidal type of control, uh, trying to make it more of an I, of an IPM guide, a holistic guide, rather than just a list of pesticides. So um, tell me what you think. Send me corrections. Uh, I'm fine. So uh, Phil asked about armyworm. I haven't had a call in, in one whole week. Bye, Tilly. I haven't had a call in about a whole week. So I figure that these suckers are pupating now. Um, will moths emerge? Yeah, I assume we'll probably will have moth emergence maybe in about 10 days or two weeks, depending on the temperature. Will they lay eggs again? Yeah, they may try, but they've got to mate and lay eggs. And this is a tropical insect, remember. So I just can't see how we would have uh, enough degree days here to have yet another infestation. But, uh, you know, again, this is the first outbreak I've ever seen and the first outbreak that we've had in about 35 to 40 years or maybe even longer that this pest has been able to move from south to north in such numbers. So I would for sure, if you have um, grain fields or forage fields, get out of the truck and look when they look good and don't wait for them to look like sticks. And uh, but I'm fingers crossed this was the end of it. We always like good news, Chris. And, and both the forage and the dry bean sections. The reason I'm a little late is last week I went and updated those and added fall armyworm on the insecticide tables. So this has really proven the point to be able to uh, control the guide and have it in a word format that we can make a PDF and it can just be changed right on the fly. I know that uh, Christy and Aaron were looking to at, at their weed guide and how to make that a little bit more responsive rather than just, you know, printing it once a year. And this has already proved itself the ability to change this very quickly. So I think Jeff may have hopped off already. Uh, I've got a question in the chat for Jeff. I think he may have had to leave to get to his class. So uh, Bill, I will forward your question on to Jeff and, and maybe he can address that next, next week. All right, I am not seeing any more questions in the chat. So thanks everyone for joining and look forward to seeing you back here next week with, with Marisol. <laughs>